Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back or welcome to What on Earth, a monthly business discussion on Australia's transition to net zero and post-carbon and what we need to know and understand about the broader strategic issues that are and will impact our business. Hello, I'm James Scotland. I'm the General Manager of Supply uh, Chains for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode to discuss and dissect the issues are my two learned colleagues, my good friends, my two amigos, Tenet Reid, the Head of National Policy for Environment and Energy for the Australian Industry Group and a well-respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tenet. G'day. I'm going to get a swollen head. <laughs> I'll just make it bigger next month. And Paul Hudson, CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. How are you? Hi, Tenant. G'day. Hello, hey, guys. Want to do a bit of a catch up? What's been coming across your desk, Tenant? What's been of uh, of pressure in your life at the moment? Wow, is there a lot going on? So the the top three things uh, in my work at the moment are. These questions of what Australia should do to respond to and try and uh, do our own version of maybe the US Inflation Reduction Act, Uh, the big questions around are we going to be able to build anything within 100 kilometres of where anybody lives and the uh, run-up to the start of the federal government's carbon leakage review, which over the next year is going to be looking at how Australia can prevent tougher climate policy, which we, we have and we're going to have more and more of it, from leading industry to pursue its future outside of Australia. And that review is going to look at my special subject, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, as well as other possible policies and tools. Uh, So my inclination would be to spend all day, every day, thinking about CBAMs and talking about CBAMs. But there is life beyond CBAMs, I am told. It's uh, it's been good. You haven't mentioned I'm not sure if I believe it. haven't mentioned CBAM for two minutes or so into the uh, podcast. (laughs) We'll come back to some of those. What what about you, Paul? What have you uh, been focusing on? So we're in the final stage of our uh, bid for a cooperative research centre for scaling green hydrogen. So that has been occupying a lot of uh, my my time and the team's time. Um, and there's been, uh, you know, we're getting towards the end of the, uh, the year, but there is a lot of events, a lot of announcements, a lot of announcements to come, um, a lot of momentum being built, I think, in green hydrogen and renewable energy, and particularly a lot of urgency around things like manufacturing as well. We've seen a lot of announcements from the federal government. Uh, we're seeing some from the states and territories. Um, I've been speaking at events. I was at the launch of the Australian Hydrogen Research Network, uh, speaking at the Asia Pacific uh, Hydrogen Summit in Sydney. Um, we've got yeah, lots and lots of things happening at the moment. So it's a, a busy year. I think people are going to be quite keen to have a break at the end of the year if possible. Yeah, I'm getting the same sense that everyone's looking forward to a break. We always do it this time of the year. There's only a few weeks to go. Let's pick up some of those issues um, as we head into this episode. I've been involved uh, with uh, the other podcast, Supply Circles, that AI Group 
uh, producers and, and I host. And I recently spoke to John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. And we talked about a, 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 an economic concept, if you like, a supply chain concept of disaster inflation or crisis inflation. So when you have a hard deadline and everyone has to hit that deadline, obviously resources become scarce and, uh, and that pushes the price up. If we've got a hard deadline of decarbonisation by 2045 or 2050, doesn't that mean everything will get much more expensive as we get closer to the deadline of decarbonising? John's point was we should start moving now and start implementing uh, you know, renewable energy into our businesses straight away. What do you think? Is, is, are we, what's going to happen with the energy costs, the, the, the cost of resources, this crisis? deadline top approach makes sense so uh, i think that you can absolutely get cost inflation uh if you're in a, a a mass mad scramble at the last minute uh without having done the groundwork um on the other hand uh the capacity to build, the capacity of uh, supply chains and of uh, the resource uh, extraction and, and processing, they, those are not fixed things. Uh, they can be invested in with sufficient time and preparation. Uh, they can be expanded. And so if we're on the ball, we ought to see over the next few decades important declines in the costs of the things that we are going to need for uh, the full transition. If we're not on the ball and we just have, you know, we're, we're racing from uh, one uh, supply chain disaster and lack of planning and coordination to another, then yes, we could be in a, a terrible state. But if we look at the the past... Uh, like the century uh, of economic development, it has not been a smooth thing. There have been lots of crises and crunches, booms and busts, uh, wars and all sorts of events along the way that, besides all their other effects, have had a huge impact on the price and availability of one commodity or another. Uh, you know, the future is not going to be less eventful than the past, uh, but also we haven't seen a trend of everything just getting more expensive in real terms over time. Quite the reverse for uh, for many things, uh, for many commodities, we've seen prices sort of steady over time, even though they feel anything but steady in the short term. So I, I, I'm more optimistic, but but I think we we do need to do a lot of work along the way uh, if we are going to achieve any of the targets that we've set for ourselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the counter-argument, as you say, is to say we, we know the hard target, so we've got plenty of time to plan for it, and we, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not an unknown like a sudden a sudden war. I guess the challenge will be whether or not if everyone starts to do it in the last few years, that will be the inflationary part. Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I agree with what Tennant says, but I, th I think there's two... There's two broad scenarios, right? One is decarbonisation of Australia, and the other one is what I'd call a decarbonisation plus scenario. Now, the decarbonisation scenario might work by waiting until technologies, products, services are done at scale, uh, they, uh, the prices come down, the uncertainties and risks disappear, but then we become a taker, not a maker. Um, and that's why I think decarbonisation plus and working earlier 
means that Australia can actually capture a bigger share of the economic and social opportunity, understanding that we are currently an, an energy exporter, but we also import a lot of our fuels and chemicals. So we actually have a lot of strategic uh, interest in actually being more self-sufficient in energy and also the supply chain that goes with that, the services and the capability here, the componentry, the manufacturing, um, potentially the recycling as well, are a strategic imperative. They, we, we need more sovereign capability uh, in not just energy, but in all the other things. So the more we can shape that earlier, the more we can uh, lead globally in that, uh, the better off we'll be in a broader sense. But we could wait. We could just wait. You know, there's lots of people that say, well, we're only a small part of the world's, uh, you know, carbon footprint. Um, yeah, let's just wait. But then we'll just be importing technology and services. We'll be importing capital. Um, you know, we may do a few transitory economic things here, but eventually we'll decarbonize, but it'll be done uh, with those economic and social benefits coming from elsewhere in the world, not from Australia. The other thing we talked about was uh, the United States have uh, uh, have realised that they need to build very long power lines from where their renewable energy sources are you know, compared to where their people are. Uh, it's sort of talking about lack of planning. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned that that's been on your mind in Australia. What's the story there? So uh, everywhere I think we're seeing that uh, there's – some variation on the slogan, there's no transition without transmission, uh, that the the, uh, the cost of achieving, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's become a cliche. <laughs> but it is also true that um, without a lot of additional transmission lines, both to connect up reses, uh, renewable energy zones, uh, and to connect regions to each other to share more energy across long distances, uh, it's very hard to cost-effectively deploy as much clean energy as economies need to, to meet their goals, whether those are affordability or reliability or low emissions. But the other thing that's true is that nobody is very enthusiastic about having new transmission lines near them. And there's a, this strong narrative in regional Australia uh, that we are having the transition done to us, but for people in the cities, that people in the cities are enjoying the benefits and we are getting the costs, which is um, big stuff polluting the skyline, uh, making life harder for, for farmers, limiting ability to, to drive tractors around, um, reducing bucolic amenity for people who are, are in the regions for lifestyle reasons, uh, and, and they're not happy about it. And we've got to deal with this. Uh, it's... Uh, it's going to absolutely strangle the development of our energy needs, um, like everybody's energy needs. I really personally contest the, um, the, the divisive, well, the, the perception of what is being done to who and for who, because actually we all pay electricity bills that are going to uh, be strongly impacted by our ability to do this stuff. But one way or another, it needs to be dealt with. 
I have some more thoughts on like the costs of failure here, but um, uh, it's a similar situation in the United States and in Europe. Uh, the p- details of planning systems differ, but um, grumpiness from local communities is is universal. I uh, I have a brother-in-law who's a cattle farmer, I've got a big property, and. Uh, and- he tells me these things occasionally and just to be argumentative, I say to him, this is pristine land until you came out here and cut, it all, cut down all the trees and made it into to farming and grazing land. <laughs> so I don't know if you can complain about, you know, the next the next generation that'll probably get me some emails. Um, but I think there's two sides of the story, I guess, is what you're saying, uh, Tenant. Uh, Paul, you want to buy into this or are you going to stay away? Yeah, look, I think a lot of it's around engagement and communication with those local communities. I know that transmission operators now, I don't know if it's in all states, but are actually paying reasonable uh, rates of of money um, for people to have transmission lines on there. And that can be actually quite lucrative for some, particularly where it doesn't really upset uh, their ability to extract an income. So um, I don't think there's any challenge with having grazing lands with with having, uh, it's not affecting your productivity by having transmission lines on it, um, uh, potentially, I, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, but the extra revenue could be quite welcome. Um, I don't know how much disruption there is in, in putting them up. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's engaging people and rather than this sense that things are happening to me, they're happening with me and for me. And, uh, and I would imagine there's still a reasonable amount of variability across that about whether people feel listened to, whether they feel those transmission lines are going through their property uh, to the big cities where 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 people are going to be you know getting all their clean energy and plugging in their EVs, uh, but their access to local electricity potentially is not that great, even though they've got a transmission line. Uh, they're on single wire earth return lines. You know they they get they get poor. Uh, pricing, it's it's covered by subsidies and the like, but it's not great. And not only that, but maybe they've got no opportunity to tap into it and, you know, utilise it for other economic development purposes or to create employment um, around electrification uh, for manufacturing or the like, or even for uh, maintenance and uh, and refurbishment of the the lines themselves. So I think I think. We, we, we have to kind of look at how we can kind of create much more synergy and much more holistic solutions than, than kind of a transactional approach around this. It, it, it's, such, it's too important an issue for us to, uh, to try and push through against resistance. It's much better to work with communities to, to see what, you know, how, how this can benefit to them, how this can be uh, a boon for them in the regions. So just a word on what's at stake for for everybody here i i agree with everything you said paul uh recently uh, transgrid the new south wales transmission operator launched a report on the 10-year development plan for transmission in the state and also included some uh, early work on what the next horizon of energy development might look like beyond uh, 2033 if New South Wales needs a lot more energy from outside the current planned renewable energy zones, either because they just need a lot more energy full stop for superpower-related reasons or because they can't get enough energy from the reses because of social licence barriers to development in them. 
And the two major options that they looked at were floating offshore wind for New South Wales or a deep inland renewable energy zone near Broken Hill with a high voltage direct current cable to connect it up to the coast. And the thing about those options, I don't want to make this report the be all and end all because stuff changes. Uh, We can get pleasant technological surprises on, on costs, but based on the best numbers that they were able to plug in this year, Uh, the costs of those two options are pretty horrifying to anybody who is after a low price total energy. So the floating offshore wind would have a a cost of $120 to $150 a megawatt hour compared to what we hope by that time to be the the cost of uh, onshore uh, wind and solar in the region of $40 a megawatt hour uh, or less. And the deep inland res was at $90 to $120 a megawatt hour. The, the transmission line doubled the underlying cost of the energy. And you can look at that and go, oh, well, this is a self-solving problem. Uh, we won't need to worry about how we're going to find all this extra energy to be an energy superpower because if that's the cost of the incremental supply, there ain't going to be no energy superpower activities happening in New South Wales. Uh, But the other way to look at it is that the cost of failure on social license, if we can't find a way to build stuff within 100 kilometres of where anybody lives, uh, then we will all be paying through the nose in the most populous state, at least, for power. Uh, There's a a huge difference to everyone in uh, the CBD of Sydney or in the bush if their wholesale power cost has got an extra 10 cents a, um, a kilowatt hour on it uh, because of where the, the base or the, the, the bulk energy is coming from. Uh, it's not the only thing that matters, but it's a big thing. So we, we all need to find a way to get this right. Are we saying that there is no way that we can have microgrids, you know, in, in every suburb or every street or whatever, uh, maybe every household smothered in uh, solar and sharing power across, you know, all users and different times. Is that not we, – we can't get to micro. We have to continue with the grid idea. No. Oh, look, I, I, I was going to make the point, actually, that uh, there's still capacity within the distribution networks um, to, to do much more distributed uh, renewables and batteries supporting the electricity sector. Um, I remember, I think there was a report about four or five years ago um, from the Property Council with, I think, UTS um, that looked at it and found that across uh, the East Coast uh, in, the, in the sort of heavily populated areas, there was enough capacity uh, or there was enough certainly rooftop capacity to be able to cover the national electricity market, which is an East Coast grid um, for my friends in WA. It's not a national electricity market, um, but the the uh, so there's more of that that can be done. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to be able to. Uh, well, we are going to need transmission as well, and we're going to need more transmission. But I, I think people like Race for Twenty Thirty, uh, CRC, uh, and others are doing a really fantastic job um, in doing that. And households continue to add solar. Right? It's um, I think we're now. I think we're maybe even at a third 
um, of households in Australia have solar on the roof. I think we're heading towards uh, at least half by 2030. Um, that just keeps soldiering on. Um, and the addition now of community batteries mm. at the utility scale and more household batteries are helping to soak up some of that, that uh, the, the duck curve, if you like, uh, the, uh, the middle of the day solar that's often getting curtailed. So, so there's, a, there's a role for both and, uh, and it isn't just about transmission, but I think the, the amount of transmission that is being uh, uh, planned is taking into account the increased growth of uh, electricity generation storage and use in in the in the distribution networks. Yeah, we definitely need both. And and of course, we're not uh, yet doing everything that we need to 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 get that um, behind the meter development and uh, customer energy resource uh, development to where it needs to be. Not just in terms of the speed of of growth, but the quality of uh, consultation and and smart use of uh, that distributed energy resource, uh, because if we do that well, we we can avoid a lot of costs both in the distribution network and uh, avoid some important costs in the centralized system too. And if we do it badly, if we say if we electrify homes with low efficiency, low-quality electric appliances that are not smartly operated and are all being turned on at 6pm, then we will radically increase the costs of our grid. Uh, So we we need attention to that at least as much as as to solving... Like, we need attention all over the place. My gosh, we we need to be thinking about... Some of us, at least, need to be thinking about these energy challenges 24 hours a day. It's a good thing we're nerds. (laughs) <laughs> well, bring on to the next issue. Uh, one of the uh, things that I've been seeing a little bit lately is uh, this question on what countries are doing this well. Uh, we mentioned in the last episode that you know we need to implement correctly and effectively or it's going to make life particularly hard for us. Uh, and it did raise a question in my mind I wanted to ask you. Who's doing it well? You, you see countries like Uruguay and Denmark, maybe Germany, China perhaps. What can we learn from around the world? Both of you have been bouncing around the world lately, so I'm going to draw on your frequent flyer points to get some insights. I don't think anyone's doing everything well. I think that there's bits and pieces that we can learn from. We are actually at like the global frontier in terms of, say, um, the, the cost and uh, scale of our um, rooftop solar deployment like we we do it better than anybody else in the world californians look in awe at our um ability to like rooftop solar is so much cheaper in australia than in uh places like california that are in other respects um pretty advanced so you know that's a good message yeah we're doing some stuff very well uh but some things are hard everywhere. I was on a um, webinar recently with a bunch of uh, German industry people and policymakers talking about industrial energy efficiency. Uh, and Germany's been banging on about industrial energy efficiency for a long time. In in some respects, they are they are far ahead of us. But 
there were a lot of very familiar problems being described by uh, the, the the German uh, people in terms of uh, the challenges of uh, acceptable payback rates, um, of uh, unpopularity, of uh, or low take up uh, on um, on some measures. Uh, so yeah, I I think it's 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 good to look around the world. Um, we can take some some messages of of what we're doing well on those trips too. Yeah, look, I I agree, Tenet. I think it is. It's bits and pieces, and some things will be relevant to Australia, and some things won't. Um, but I really like you know that rooftop solar example when we were talking about you know why Australia might might move quicker, why you know why we wouldn't might might just wait for the rest of the world to you know, decarbonize themselves and then come and decarbonize Australia. Um, we, we are world leaders in the technologies around balancing grids for renewables. Um, and that's being driven mm. by Australia being a leader in rooftop solar. Um, so our, our knowledge of the distribution networks and how that works, you know, you've got companies like Power Ledger switched in Alexis. You've got a whole bunch of companies that have got global footprints now out of Australia in the tech and manufacturing sector and in the software and services sector who are global leaders. And it's because Australia hit issues quicker than the rest of the world because we did lead and because we have led in, in doing that. Um, and that, that's something that we, we, we should lean into. We should, we should uh, certainly look to lead in understanding the challenges, the problems, um, and incentivizing people here to come up with solutions that then they can take to global markets because that gives us a much bigger economic and employment uh, opportunity out of decarbonization than simply, you know, uh, twiddling our thumbs and waiting for a, a company overseas to come and sort it out for us. Hmm. Yeah, John Grimes on the other podcast called it, uh, said Australia was the gold standard in the, the solar uh, uh, solar industry for domestic. Hey, we got a question uh, from a, a listener who referred to our last. Uh, I'm just going to pull up. Who referred to our, our last episode where we said that uh, China infrastructure is possibly slowing down and that could affect our export industries. And they asked the question: Does that mean that it will be easier for Australia to build the infrastructure that we are planning uh, all, all throughout the the country with you know, Olympic Games and? Victoria doing lots of things, New South Wales doing lots of things. But how will, will we pay for it if we're going to lose our exports? How are we going to build this infrastructure? So if there is indeed a slowdown in Chinese infrastructure investment, and I know every every day there's new and conflicting uh, economic news out of China, uh, and there's certainly efforts to get uh, and, and strong voices inside Chinese economic policymaking seeking more infrastructure investment, but you know, to facilitate uh, maybe uh, different things than than previous rounds. So we'll have to see. But if there is that slowdown, then yes, there'll be a whole bunch of Chinese suppliers of infrastructure-related materials and kit and expertise who will be looking for export markets for that to an even greater degree than they are today. And we could well see, for instance, uh, declines in the um, traded prices of steel uh, and uh, a, a lot of 
um, greater capacity available, at least from the the tradable bits, uh, for doing um, infrastructure here. Um, but yep, we'd we'd have uh, fewer exports to pay for those imports, even if the imports are cheaper. So how all that works out, I don't know. We also face some important local constraints on infrastructure deployment, including um, the tight labour market and the the full um, order books of the the firms that do a lot of this, and the fact that some like there's been a collapse of of at least one high uh, profile um, service provider. So I think cheaper stuff out of China helps uh, to the extent that we're comfortable to use it. I was going to say there's uh, it really there's lots of variables, right? So even the Australian dollar, the the uh, the projections for the Australian dollar are not very strong at the moment either. So imports uh, are going to be more expensive. Mm. I think as Tenant was talking about, um, but the decisions of producers as well of some of that infrastructure. And I know from talking to people, for example, in the transmission sector, that the 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 lead time for key parts of transmission. Uh, at the moment, can be anywhere from two and a half years to seven years uh, for key components of transmission infrastructure that comes into Australia, wow. Wow. Um, which again is a, uh, a a reason why we'd be wanting to doing a lot more manufacturing here anyway, or at least be stockpiling components so that we don't uh, uh, we don't try and do everything in series and end up with uh, with massive massive delays. Uh, so what what might find is that the prices don't change actually, but instead of waiting seven years, we're only waiting four years now or something, right? So, um, so there's there's lots of different actors that will make decisions. You're full of joy, Tim. <laughs> oh no, no, I am. I'm always the optimist, as you know, James. Um, but it's uh, uh, there's a lot of realities we have to be cognizant of, and we have to. Uh, if we don't, if we're not cognizant of them, we won't, we won't, um, we won't d- develop either ways of going around them, through them, or uh, overcoming them. Yeah, yeah, good question. Thanks, Rod. Um, leads us on to this uh, idea of who's going to pay for things. Uh, now, tenant Victoria, the, the courts. It's always in, an easy question. <laughs> the courts, in, uh, the courts. I think it's a, a federal court, was it? Uh, struck down the. Uh, the High that. Court of Australia, oh, the highest court in the land. I've been there. It's a great place uh, in, in Canberra. Um, uh, they struck down the uh, the idea that Victoria had about charging EV users uh, a tax, according to the High Court. Tell us about this and what's it mean? So this is a big one, and it's a big one uh, because it affects this specific tax, which is an interesting deal in its own right, but it may also, and by the time this episode goes to air, who knows what more speculation we'll have, it may also affect a lot of other taxes and charges that various state governments levy at the moment. So the Victorians uh, introduced uh, what they called the distance-based charge for zero and low emissions vehicles. And the idea was that this was going to be uh, a, a preview of a future where everybody's 
driving EVs, nobody's buying petrol or diesel anymore, uh, and there's no more revenue from the fuel excise to notionally go towards covering the costs of maintenance and construction of roads. Now, fuel excise doesn't literally go towards that. Uh, There's no hypothecation of that revenue stream to that spending area, but it is an important, it's like about 2.9% of the federal tax take is fuel excise at the moment, and that's plausibly gonna go down a long way over the next few decades. Uh, So the states, led by Victoria, thought, well, let's get in early and prepare for that. And incidentally, let's grab that revenue stream directly for us rather than having the the feds collected on our behalf. Uh, And so they brought in this tax at a low rate relative to the per kilometre cost of fuel excise for internal combustion engine vehicles. EV people hated this Uh, this tax. And it was a very clunky tax too. Like it was not a sophisticated dynamic road pricing system. It was email a photo of your odometer reading twice a year to Vic Roads and uh, they'll tell you how much you owe. Uh, It's pretty crude uh, as far as road pricing goes. Uh, It was appealed to or taken to the High Court, challenged on constitutional grounds, and the court has, by a a majority with some very strong dissents, agreed that uh, this tax breached the constitution which grants the federal government exclusive uh, control over excises. And there's some complex legal reasoning involved in uh, finding that this um, distance-based charge on EVs was uh, an excise. Uh, But the judgment of the majority of the majority is extremely broadly phrased. And it basically says that any tax on goods, whether it is on the purchase of goods or the use of goods or the transfer or resale or destruction of goods, Uh, is something that can only be done by uniform national legislation. And so the Zlev tax in Victoria is gone. It might also be that no other road pricing system uh, from the states can happen. Maybe only the feds can do that. Although if I really put my Bush lawyer hat on, uh, maybe the feds can't do that either because a road pricing system would involve charging more for some roads than others. For instance, more for using congested urban roads than lightly used rural roads. And that might breach another bit of the constitution, which says the feds have got power over taxation, but not so as to discriminate between uh, different states or different parts of states. So uh, we're going to need a few more cases, I think, to be settled by the High Court before we really know how wide this goes. But a lot of stuff could be unseated, including uh, a lot of things that could be construed on as or are taxes on electricity, which includes a lot of climate and energy related policies. So I've got a few questions for you, Tennant, because I haven't read it in in the depth that you have. But um, the first one is, Does this expose the Victorian government to compensation for people who have paid it? Yeah, maybe they will have to do refunds. Not a lot of money has actually been paid so far because even in Victoria, there there are not that many EV drivers. 
Uh, but uh, it, it that that seems possible that they might have to refund the money collected so far. And you know the happy days for the Victorian treasurer. Exactly. They they well they they and they're having trouble. They're having challenges of their own anyway, right? In Victoria, so in terms of budget, so. Um, but I, I wonder about because I mean the the ruling sounds like it might be broader than you know going back to square one and trying to work out another road user basis system which might actually cover both internal combustion and electric vehicles because obviously governments need revenue and it does cost to pro, pro, you know provide roads and other infrastructure uh, for vehicles um, so so do you think it and and I'm I'm getting the sense this week that the feds aren't rushing into parliament legislation to do anything national around this. So uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, 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 there's not going to be any push, I think, to some sort of national legislation around this to sort of support what Victoria was looking to do either. So, um, but, but it sounds like it might have been broader than, and, than the, and, and might apply to a whole range of other things, which takes a lot of things back to the drawing board potentially. So here's... Uh, some key text from the conclusion of the majority of the majority. So um, given some words about the free trade area that comprises the whole of the geographic area of Australia, any tax on Zlevs or any other goods, whether imposed at the stage of their importation into Australia or production or manufacture in Australia or any subsequent stage in distribution, sale, ownership, control, use, resale, reuse or destruction in Australia or export from Australia can be opposed, imposed only by uniform national legislation. So that would be just as true of internal combustion engine vehicles as of electric ones. Uh, it would be just as true of... I think, electricity uh, as of anything else. Uh, it would be true of maybe waste uh, and waste levies. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, it's like 20 years since I was a law student and uh, a lot has happened since then. Um, but this is this is a big judgment. This is a, a Dorothy Dixer Um is it contestable? Can they contest the decision? Well, th like the, the High Court can reverse itself. And it, in this case, the majority did overturn a previous judgment of the High Court from a long time ago. They don't like to reverse themselves, even when there's personality change. Uh, it's, it's a big thing to go back and tear up a previous decision. But there were some very strong dissents. In, in this case, uh, some of the other justices saying, oh, you're really making up a very broad, strong new principle that is very different to what we've done before. So like never say never. And of course, in subsequent judgments, uh, they might, if, if people are coming up here uh, to, the, to the court and saying, oh, we want a, uh, you to rule out 10 other uh, policies that state governments have had for donkey's years and really uh, overturn the apple cart, it might be that the High Court uh, finds ways to narrow its previous judgment and say, oh, well, you know, we were just talking about a particular context and these other things are fine. But you won't know. 
And every attorney general's department in the country is now feverishly going through uh, their stock of taxes and charges and fees and maybe broader policies to think which of these might no longer be sound and do we have to worry about getting a challenge to? And like, uh, we'll watch this space. Yeah, it turns out that wasn't a Dorothy Dick side. I actually didn't know the answer. Uh, any other question, Paul, before we move on? No, so it was a full bench decision, though. So uh, that's less able to be appealed, though, isn't it? Is that right? Oh, well, so um, yes, but the, um, the, the bench had a lot of different views, and even the majority view was of three justices uh, with a fourth concurring but doing their own judgment uh, in order to get this majority. So, uh, you know, you, 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 you might roll the dice if you were um, a state government on something else that sounds like it might be ruled out actually turning out to be okay, but um, you very much will be rolling the dice. You sound like a very successful law student there, by the way, Tennant. It's a full bench decision, but not a majority of the full bench, so it's not full. But uh, anyway, <laughs> legalese. Uh, let's talk about how we're going to spend some money. I hear there's the hydrogen head start. I'm going to take up some of our money, Paul. Uh, yeah, so it was announced in uh, the May budget, and it's uh, a $2 billion program for large-scale, um, I'm not quite sure, I think they call it renewable hydrogen, um, which I think is what we, what I would call green hydrogen. Um, there's clean hydrogen, there's lots of different adjectives around hydrogen, but it's effectively for uh, principally electrolysis-based hydrogen. Um, and to really as a, um, uh, as a response to the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, I think, and, and, uh, and other kind of production credits, um, and other systems tax credits around the, around the world that have been put in place. Um, kudos to uh, ARENA and uh, DQ, the Department of Climate Change, Energy, Environment and Water, for getting to uh, releasing expression of interest stage within only a few short months, including a quite extensive consultation process in between. Mm. Um, it's one of the most rapid pieces of uh, policy to implementation that I've seen in probably my 30 years in, in this space, right? So uh, so it's, it's amazing and it's great because I think that's an intent that the Australian government is sending, not just domestically, but globally, that we, we want to be in the race. Um, uh, it, uh, there's only four weeks. Um, in fact, by the time this podcast is out, people might have missed the boat um, or uh, in terms of getting their expressions of interest in, and it will run through to the uh, October next year is the plan when when they would be announced. And uh, the idea is a production credit would be paid quarterly over a 10-year period. Um, but it'll be maybe one, two, three, probably not much more than that, uh, projects or consortia uh, that, will, that will access that program. But it might help drive some of the scale challenges that we have at the moment of, of integrating the supply chain, scaling it up, um, and, and all the learnings that will come from, from that. And uh, certainly within our Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Center, we've got a lot of the, the major green hydrogen, uh, ammonia, green methanol, 
uh, SAF proponents in the country, um, and a number of them, I suspect, will be looking to uh, to put in an expression of interest for the Hydrogen Head Start program. But uh, that's probably been uh, a major. It's quite a significant funding program uh, that's that's been announced recently. Mm. Um, and yeah, watch watch this space. Um, interestingly, I don't know what that means for final investment decision in the meantime. Uh, there can sometimes be unintended consequences of this. If I yep. was, uh, if I was about to announce my final investment decision on a large green hydrogen project out of Australia, would I put my pen away now because I don't want to, uh, because the the Australian government's dangling two billion dollars of money uh, over the next year, and maybe we may see less final investment decisions announced between now and next October. Because why would you do it if there was the offering of potentially several hundred million dollars uh, from the Australian government as a production credit. Um, so uh, that, that's just a little, a little thing on the side. There's often uh, con- unintended consequences of, uh, of, of, of initiatives, particularly if they, uh, they will take a little while to sort through a competitive process. Yeah, the question that came to my mind when you first started speaking was, what can we read into the fact that they're doing this more rapidly than you've ever seen before? What's, what signal are they sending or what can we read into it? What was your reaction when you first heard it, Tennant? Well, uh, I, I think that Hydrogen Head Start is a, is a really interesting program. The speed is absolutely interesting and the fact that it's uh, effectively applying a contract for difference type model where there, there will be uh, credits for uh, clean hydrogen production, but the the value of those credits is going to depend on the gap between whatever the hydrogen sales are able to earn and a price point that's agreed with the federal government that's the the, the revenue that the project needs in order to be viable. Uh, which is, is a model that we've applied previously in this country to electricity. We haven't done it at, uh, with government policy for clean economy commodities other than electricity. So that's really interesting. Um, at $2 billion over 10 years, this thing might wind up supporting something like 100,000 tonnes a year of clean hydrogen production, uh, which is a hell of a lot more tonnes of clean hydrogen production than there is in Australia today, uh, but compares to visions for what the future clean hydrogen global market might be that are in the hundreds of millions of tonnes range. So this is a, even at $2 billion, this is a toe in the water. One other thing that hasn't really come up in the Australian discussion so far, but has been a huge part of the debates going on in the United States and Europe about their hydrogen support policies, is the question of other unintended consequences than, than those that Paul was mentioning. Um, and I, I drew the Head Start program design to the attention of uh, Jesse Jenkins, uh, noted US um energy academic and policy wonk, very, very great guy, influential guy. He took a very short look at it and said uh, it's no good because it fails two of the three pillars for uh, hydrogen policy design that they're very centering arguments about in the US. Those, the, the two pillars in question are 
new clean supply and hourly matching of clean supply to demand uh, as being absolute requirements if you're not going to produce a situation where you're inadvertently increasing emissions. Now, I would be really interested in Paul's thoughts on that because I think it's actually okay uh, in the context of Australia and it's not going to produce crazy consequences. But, but Paul, what do you reckon? I think it's really interesting. Hasn't Europe put in place a, a process that uh, green hydrogen, I don't know, they keep changing, but I thought it was from 2028, it had to be from yes. new renewable sources. Um, and I think one of, the, yeah. one of the challenges for renewable hydrogen or green hydrogen is that we are trying to decarbonize our existing electricity grid um, and we are adding further load to the electricity grid in terms of EVs and electrification of industry and other uses, uh, potentially replacing domestic heating uh, and cooking, although I know that there is some uh, controversy around that. Um, so, the, so, so the, and, and we're not- That's another two podcasts worth right there. It is, it is. Um, so the, 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 the challenge is that we're, 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 we're struggling a little bit with that, right? So uh, the-, the, the mm. The, the flow of getting green electrons generated. We've talked about transmission. We could talk about connection agreements. We could talk about access to the manufacturing. We could talk about regulatory approvals. We could talk about shifting financial models and, and curtailment. You know, what, there, there, there's, there's a lot of different issues as to why we're not getting uh, the renewables into the grid as quick as we can. So if, we're, if we make it a competition for those green electrons, the only way is going to be up in terms of the cost, the price, um, and also maybe that we're putting it into green hydrogen um, and maybe helping decarbonize another economy by exporting those green electrons. And we're, we're uh, slowing our own decarbonization down because those green electrons aren't new green electrons, they're being taken off the grid. Um, there are different ways of doing that, and I've uh, I was actually in uh, as part of the uh, at, at a university looking at um, some projects they're doing actually looking around uh, the degradation of electrolyzers and how the um, how they may be able to uh, to operate them at very low levels um, so that they can they can use electrolysis just when uh, there is a surplus of green electrons uh, rather than running them twenty four seven. So there's some interesting things that we can do to mitigate, I think, that issue. But certainly we need more, more green electricity where, wherever it comes from um, and that, uh, to reduce the competitive tension between various offtakes for that, for that energy. Well, the government's charged ahead with this design without um, inside the design trying to address those issues at least not with specific provisions. I, I do think it's going to be okay because I don't think the underlying economics are favourable or the competitive dynamics in, in trying to win a contract in, in these um, uh, the, the auction that is going to be held for um, well, the application process, but it's, it's very close to an auction. Uh, that's going to be held. It's it's going to be very hard to prevail uh, on those fronts if you are trying to rely on existing renewables in, that are grid connected, because the like the electricity contracts that are available out there for um, 
new demand or existing demand are not cheap. Uh, and the, the kind of projects that are likely to get up under this program are going to have dedicated new renewable supply that's closely associated with the project and maybe not grid connected at all. Um, because if you're trying to be competitive in hydrogen production, you can't afford to pay for 99.9998% uh, reliability of electricity supply. Um, it's not worth that much to you. Uh, so I, I, I hesitate to say the market will decide, but I think the market will decide in a, in a way that is with this program design going to be okay for emissions, better than okay, but maybe not. Yeah, and I just want to, uh, just to throw a couple of figures out there around the scale, right? So in the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC, we, we've, we've kind of tried to backcast for maybe a terawatt of electrolysis. Um, but if you look at 100 gigawatts, so a tenth of that at the moment, right? So, and we've got $300 billion of uh, hydrogen projects nationally in our pipeline. Um, so $2 billion in that context is reasonably small. Um, but that $300 billion is probably, it's 40% of the world's uh, uh, announced projects. It's uh, approaching about 100 gigawatts. So if you look at the 100 gigawatts amount of electrolysis, and if that's running 24-7, uh, that's about that's over four times the terawatt hours that are produced by our national electricity market, um, and it's about yeah. uh, one Sydney Harbour of fresh water additional uh, per annum, uh, which is 500 gigalitres of of water. Now you know you can argue the toss about whether it's 600 or 400 or 350, um, and there'll be improvements to that. But at the back of the the back of the beer coast, at the back of the envelope, the back of the napkin kind of uh, calculation is that these are very big quantities. Um, and one of the things that I think is important for Hydrogen Head Start and Australia had the third national hydrogen strategy in the world is a signal of intent, because intent actually drives domestic entrepreneurship, innovation, and investment. It also keeps the rest of the world interested in Australia that we are ambitious. Um, and that is no small thing. Um, if, we, if we kind of look like we don't really, we're not really interested in playing this game, uh, people will look elsewhere. Um, and I think that will be to our detriment. It's been another fascinating conversation, gentlemen. Uh, uh, we've covered a fair bit. We talked about deadline inflation and microgrids and full grids. We talked about taxes on EVs or not taxing EVs, the, uh, the hydrogen funding. Uh, and we also uh, chatted about the uh, the uh, infrastructure spend. It's been a great chat. It's uh, another busy month, uh, the one we've just been in. I'm sure the next one's going to be equally as busy. We didn't get to talk about the Australian CBAM or the Australian IRA. We might come back to that next time uh, just to keep... Uh, I can hardly wait. <laughs> tenant happy. <laughs> Have a good month, guys. Like, looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks. See you soon. Thanks very much, Tenant. Thanks, James. Really great discussion. And I think by the time we meet again, we might know the result of the funding for the CRC, perhaps. Well, it's going to be by the end of December has been the government's announcement. But, um, uh, but I think once the interviews are over at the end of October, it's really then in the ministers and the government's um, ballywick to work out when they want to announce the successful recipients. Um, and uh, they may do them all on one day or they may, uh, they may drip out the announcements depending on what, what's actually happening. 
but we've got COP28 coming up um, at the end of November and early December. So uh, maybe we'll be talking that uh, about that at the at the next one. Indeed. December, here we come. All right, thanks, guys. See you next month. Thanks. See you then.